Welcome to the Wealthy Circle Podcast, where we take a deeper dive into this year's finalists and winners from our wealthmanagement.com 2020 Industry Awards. These interviews cover the challenges, innovations, and trends in the wealth management industry and the individuals working to help advisors better help their clients. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wealthies Podcast. I'm David Armstrong, the editor of wealthmanagement.com. This is the podcast where we're speaking to finalists and winners of our wealthmanagement.com industry awards. And as you all know, the industry awards are designed to recognize the leaders and initiatives that help financial advisors do a better job for themselves and for their clients. And today I'm thrilled to be talking to Rick Edelman, founder of Edelman Financial Services, now Edelman Financial Engines. Rick, thanks very much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, David. Uh, so the judges recognized you this year for uh, individual RIA firm leader, thought leader of the year. And I can think of no better person for that. Uh, you've been given a lot of thought to the registered investment advisory space and the financial advisory space for a long time. Uh, why don't you just, uh, first of all, back up and just tell me a little bit about where are you dialing in from? Where are you calling in from? How are things from your view of the world right now? Uh, I'm in Fairfax, Virginia, just outside of D.C., uh, where our uh, one of our headquarters locations are. It's kind of funny. We have four headquarters locations as a result of our merger, so uh, it's hard to tell uh, where, the, where the flag is being staked in the ground, but uh, we're in uh, just outside D.C., where we've had a wonderful set of weather here in November so far. Okay, great. And how are you guys uh, handling the, the virus down there? Well, we're uh, bubbling like everybody else, you know, hunkering down and trying to stay safe. This is not fun, uh, and it's been very difficult for so many families, uh, and uh, a lot of our clients have been affected, many of our staff, uh, and of course, millions of families across the country. And so, so far, so good. We're enthused at the news of the vaccine progress, and we're hopeful it pans out as well as they're suggesting. Yeah, for sure. Maybe that's a good place to start. Uh, I mean, it's been a crazy year for everyone, our industry included. How do you think our industry is holding up? How do you think uh, uh, financial advisors have done in terms of helping their clients through this time? I think well overall. Uh, the advantage of our business is that it is a virtual business. We, we are in intangibles. We don't have a product uh, physically. You know, we're not manufacturing widgets, so we don't need to be on a factory floor. and We don't have to deal with distribution of those products. What we do is provide advice. And the products, if there are, are products for us to be dealing with, they are intangibles, securities, investments meaning, and uh, insurance, uh, mortgages and, and credit cards and the like. And those being intangibles allow us to work anywhere. Uh, so our industry, the financial services industry, can work remotely uh, with seamless uh, effect. So we were one of the first in the industry at, here at Edelman Financial Engines to go remote. We shut down our offices very early in the pandemic process because we had the technology in place to allow all of us, 1,500 uh, employees, including over 350 financial advisors, to work from home or any other location seamlessly for our clients. Uh, other than them not being able to come physically visit with us in the office, we've been able to do everything we normally do by phone, by now Zoom, uh, which is new for all of us, as well as uh, emails, uh, etc. So it's been very easy for us to provide ongoing consistent service to our clients without any interruption. Yeah. And, you know, I think we heard that a lot, right? Uh, that uh, the you know, the advisors who were going digital anyway uh, were just sort of accelerated along that path uh, because of the pandemic. 
and, and what it required of them. Are, are any of your 350 financial advisors uh, giving you any feedback in terms of what their clients are thinking about this uh, in terms of the remote meetings, the Zoom meetings with a financial advisor? I think there was some theory out there that you know clients wanted to come into the office and they wanted to sit across the table from the advisor. They wanted them. I don't agree with that at all. I think that's yep. hubris on the part of the advisor. Yep. Um, the clients, I mean, it's easy for the advisor to say to the client, come on into my office, be here at two o'clock. It's the client who has to drive through traffic, interrupting their day in both directions to deal with that. Uh, I think clients are thrilled. The feedback we're getting is that they're thrilled that they're not having to jump into the car to make that trip, that they can accomplish it over Zoom. Now, clearly, if it's a brand new client, not being able to meet face to face, physically see the offices and get the lay of the land, I, that is a disadvantage. There's no question about it. But for existing clients, which is who most of us are dealing with most of the time, they enjoy the convenience of not having to get in the car. Uh, and well, I'll tell you one thing they are doing, though, what most clients are doing, they're turning their cameras off. In other words, they want to see us, but we don't want, they don't want us to see them. Uh, and I think that's because all of us are self-conscious when it comes to Zoom. Bad lighting, bad angle, uh, dirty background with, uh, in, you know, in the kitchen or wherever we're doing it. So, and that's fine with us. They don't have to you know, let us see them, but we do want them to see us. So when you uh, do that, did you find yourself having to, or your organization having to give any kind of uh, uh, last minute uh, training to advisors on how to best present over zoom uh, absolutely uh this is a whole new skill set and it's not enough that you're a good financial advisor you have to be able to communicate effectively as well the fact that you have knowledge doesn't help if the recipient doesn't want to receive it so yes we have done extensive training with our planners and not just training but providing them the equipment they need uh the cameras and the uh, audio and the lighting uh, and working with them on placement of that camera and placement of the lights, the background environment that they're in, so that it is a conducive environment as professional as when they're meeting with a client physically face-to-face -face in the office. Yeah, it probably comes more naturally to some than others, I imagine. Indeed, no question about it. Um, you guys have uh, did a survey recently amongst clients, I believe, uh, investors uh, about, you know, how they're dealing with the impact, the economic impact of the uh, pandemic. What were, what were some of your findings there? Yeah, we did a massive survey uh, on our workplace side. We, we manage about, uh, oh, I guess it's about 140 of the 401k plans of the Fortune 500. Mm -hmm. And we have 10 million workers uh, at those companies uh, that we provide services to. And so we did a massive survey of, of the workplace to see what attitudes are. And we came up with a lot of shocking statistics, two in particular that caught my eye. Number one, about more than half, uh, slightly more than half, feel that the current economic crisis is worse than it was in 2008. And that's saying something, because we all remember how horrific that was with the stock market down 56% at one point, uh, 10 million jobs lost, and people feel this is worse. Second, the really startling data point, about 25% said that they've had to withdraw money from their 401k to deal with current bills. That itself doesn't surprise me that it's one out of four, but here's what did shock me. 39% of the people who withdrew money said they didn't need the money. Why did they withdraw it? Because members of their family needed it. 
adult mm. children who've lost their jobs, aging parents, brothers and sisters who ran into financial problems in the pandemic. And we need to remember that, that even though you might be fine, that you've got a stable income and plenty of assets, members of your family might not be so fortunate. And we're a generous society and we're, we love our families. We're going to do what it takes to help them. Your financial je- future may be jeopardized, not because of your issues, but because of those in your, in your family. Yeah, that's interesting. I, the perspective I hadn't really thought of before. And I'll tell you why, because I think from a certain perch, from a you know financial advisor, wealth management perch, we don't really see the damage, right? I mean, I, I don't doubt that these people think that it's worse than it was in 2008, but our markets aren't down 50%. In fact, our markets are at all times high. Uh, you know, college-educated uh, uh, clients, uh, by and large, are still employed. Uh, we don't really see this economic damage. You're absolutely right, and uh, and yet we have to recognize the numbers are really horrific. 110 million Americans went into the pandemic in credit card debt, and 25% of them have had to increase their debt as a result of this. Uh, we have tens of millions of homeowners and renters facing eviction as soon as that moratorium is lifted. Uh, we have uh, 40% of small businesses in America say they're going to be out of cash within six months. Uh, so this crisis is still with us. And even though the vaccine news has been pretty good the past week and a half, that's not going to be a benefit for us until spring and summer at best. Uh, we still have to get through the winter. And we know that the numbers are growing all in the wrong directions, infection rate, hospitalization rate, death rate. It's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. 10% of American businesses say they're going to do further job layoffs before the end of the year. Uh, And you're right, as financial planners, we sometimes don't see that. And it therefore causes some advisors to provide the wrong advice to their clients from an investment strategy. Instead of getting excited about the fact that the market's at all-time highs, we ought to be questioning whether or not that makes any sense. Uh, There's a huge disconnect between the economy and the stock market right now. And uh, there are a lot of warning bells going off in a lot of quarters. And we are spending a lot of time in our firm cautioning our clients not to get euphoric, to keep their risks in check, to recognize that there may be some significant volatility headed our way so that they don't panic if and when it occurs and to prepare them by increasing their cash reserves and reducing their equity allocations in some cases so that they don't panic should that happen. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, tease that a little bit more for me in terms of the advisor side, what the advisor should be doing, because you know, it, it almost seems like for a long time there, we were thinking about, well, this is going to be damaging to the RIA industry that, uh, you know, stock market falls as it did in March. Uh, if that stays down where it did, uh, you know, the advisors who tend to still charge on a percentage of assets managed uh, would see their revenue cut and potentially could be, you know, devastating for this industry. That didn't happen. It hasn't happened yet, but it right. certainly could. Think back to 08. I remember an advisor I knew back in 08. Uh, he had a billion dollars in assets under management. And when the market fell, he lost half of his AUM. And that angered so many of his clients, half of them fired him, causing yeah. his assets to fall to 250, and he's out of business. So, yeah, you need to make sure that your practice can withstand 
uh, extreme levels of volatility. And the way you do that is not only by tempering the risk in the portfolios for clients, but through proper education so the clients can anticipate what's coming. If, if we see the bus coming, we're much less likely to be hit by it and we can protect ourselves should that occur. So uh, we as advisors need to be engaging in planning of a conservative, cautious nature, you know, plan for the worst while you're hoping for the best. Yeah, for sure. Is this when you talk about like, how 2020 has changed the advisory model? Uh, is, is this what you're talking about uh, in terms of uh, maybe taking some risk off the table? Or what kind of changes do you think that advisory, the advisory industry is going through now that maybe will last beyond this pandemic into the future? Well, right now, as we know, most financial advisors are over the age of 60. Uh, and you've really got to question yourself about succession planning. What is it you are planning to do? Asset values are very high. There's a lot of money out there, folks seeking deals here, even at Edelman Financial Engines, we are constantly looking at opportunities for uh, merging with or acquiring other advisory practices um, because the, it is opportunistic right now. And so if you're an advisor, you've got to ask yourself, how much better might this situation get? And is now an opportunity to monetize your practice? Uh, and you really need to give that some serious thought uh, while this opportunity exists, because it's not something that is always here. It certainly wasn't the case in 08. And who knows what 2021 will bring. Sure. And I guess a lot of uh, some economic prognosticators, if they're to be believed, can you know look out over the next decade and think we're probably in for a low growth environment for 10 years. I mean, even after we come out of this crisis. Well, there are a lot of folks who are saying that. Uh, Morgan Stanley just released a report saying they think a 60-40 portfolio is going to return 2.8% a year over the next decade. Research Affiliate says it's going to do even worse than that. Uh, Bank of America published a report calling the, uh, the end of the 60-40 portfolio. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of negativity out there. GMO, Ray Dalio, there are a lot of folks saying that uh, – this decade to come is not going to be like the decade we just ended. What challenge does that pose for the advisor who's planning for the next decade? Forget trying to just get out of this crisis and onto, you know, normal life. Uh, but looking out over the next decade, what, time, what, what advisors need to do differently uh, if that's the case? We need to do several things. Number one, we need to reevaluate the asset allocation models we're using. We need to evaluate the kinds of companies that we are investing in for our clients. We are very big fans of exponential technologies in our firm, uh, investing in companies that are built for the 21st century as opposed to those that were successful in the 20th century. It's the difference between Kodak and Instagram, for example. Uh, you need to look at the level of uh, and breadth of services that you're providing your clients. If you are only providing investment management, if that's your value proposition, you're probably going to fail. You need to do much more than that. The broad array, not just of financial planning, but of broadly life planning, helping your clients deal with the increasing elements of longevity that are going to change every aspect of life in, in American society so that your clients are able to prosper in the environment that is coming. And advisors need to make sure that you're providing the kinds of services that will be perceived as valuable by your clients. You also have to recognize that 
you're going to need more clients, new clients, that the clients you have are aging as well. Uh, and if you think you're going to retain the assets when they pass, you're probably kidding yourself because most heirs fire their parents' advisors. So you need to figure out how to bring on new clients into the practice and how to sustain the practice in a technological world that we're going to be in. Bottom line is this, David. Most advisors today have successful practices, but the message is the following. What got you here won't get you there. What you're going to be doing in 10 years is not going to be what you're doing today or what you were doing 10 years ago. And advisors who recognize that will prosper, and those who don't probably will be out of the business. Yeah, I, we not even to mention the changes to retirement that this pandemic will bring, right? Uh, you know, we're, we're still talking about uh, perhaps early retirement, uh, more kind of you know, digital distanced uh, retirement. You know, it's, I don't think we quite know what it looks like yet. Well, we know that it's changing. Uh, I'm on the advisory boards of both the Stanford Center on Longevity and the Milken Institute on Aging. And I've spoken at MIT's Age Lab as well. And what we do know is that life expectancy is growing dramatically. Uh, Stanford is creating the new map of life targeting age 100. The notion that we're going to retire at 65 and be dead by 85 is ancient history. You need to expect that you're going to be alive to 100. I personally believe that if you're alive in 2030, you will likely have a life expectancy to 120. Hmm. So that turns retirement inside out. Retirement will not exist in the 21st century. Uh, you're going to need to earn an income into your 80s, 90s, 100s. You're going to want to do so because you're going to want to continue contributing to society and playing golf five days a week for 40 years is going to be really boring. So you're going to want to be engaged and financially, you're going to need to be engaged. And this means we have to rethink our definition of long-term investing. People in their 60s who think they shouldn't have much money in stocks are, are wrong. And advisors need to rejigger the nature of portfolios because businesses that are successful today, like nursing homes, probably won't even exist 30 years from now because the issues that put people into nursing homes are all going to get cured. Um, nursing homes, which are currently one-way trips, you go in, you don't walk out. In the future, you will uh, because they're going to cure whatever has put you in the place. So we have to reevaluate all the fundamental assumptions we have about the strategies we're giving our clients with their investments, their taxes, their mortgage, home ownership, marriage, estate planning, career, uh, and education, all of it is going to be different. This was all the focus of my most recent book, The Truth About Your Future. And that was in 2017. The pandemic is accelerating all of these trends. Uh, because we're all realizing the move toward digitization is now more and more important than ever. So how is a financial advisor supposed to help a client with that paradigm shift? Uh, That's our job. Our yeah. job is to look into the future. We are planners. That's the difference between us and accountants. They're historians. They record on paper what happened last year. We are planners. I don't care what happened last year. I care what's going to happen in the next year, in the next decade, in the next half century. So we've got to look ahead and be futurists so that we can anticipate what's coming and give our clients the advice they need today to prepare them. For example, we are counseling our clients on what kind of college majors their children ought to be getting in school because many of the degrees that exist today are going to be for jobs that will be disappearing in the next 10 years. Why get a degree in a field that literally won't exist? So we are providing a lot of counsel on helping clients deal with 
college education, not just what your child studies, but what are you willing to pay for that degree? We're evaluating the nature of home ownership. Uh, if you're building a home or buying a home, is it designed for a post-COVID world? Uh, is it preparing itself for a self-driving vehicle environment? The notion of a three-car garage, what do you need them for? You probably 10 or 15 years from now will never own a car again for the rest of your life. It'll be service on demand. Uh, you'll treat your cars like we treat today elevators. You just get in the next one that shows up. So we have to look forward to the future and prep our clients so they can begin to digest this, evaluate it, and determine how best to apply it in their own lives. And if you're not doing that for your clients, then what good are you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you're something of a futurist. Uh, you know, you have investment portfolio around uh, future technology. Can you give us some? Uh, sense of what's in that investment portfolio or what you look for for uh, 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 stocks that uh, uh, are built for the long term? Well, the good news is there are now a good two or three dozen ETFs uh, and mutual funds on the market that emphasize exponential technologies. I created uh, the first one that existed in the industry, the iShares Exponential Technologies ETF. We invented that in 2015 because I couldn't find a fund that invested broadly in companies that were either developing or deploying these technologies. I'm talking about AI and robotics, 3D printing, nanotech, biotech, bioinformatics, fintech, edtech, big data, SDVs. Uh, and we, we couldn't find that. So I asked uh, BlackRock to build it which they did in conjunction with Morningstar. Morningstar created the index of exponential technologies, licensed it to BlackRock, launched it in 2015. It now has over $3 billion in assets in it. It's one of the most successful ETF launches in history. Uh, And now there are dozens of similar ETFs in the marketplace. Some of them are more narrowly focused. They engage only in robotics or only in cybersecurity, for example. Others are more broad, like the uh, XT ETF is. So advisors have this available to them, readily and and available. Uh, I'll add that our firm receives no compensation for that that ETF. We just wanted to get it into the marketplace so our clients could buy it uh, and make it available to all advisors and and investors everywhere. So we have no financial stake in it. we open sourced it. And so uh, there's no reason for advisors not to be doing this. You need to decide how to construct the portfolio of these different funds and what percentage of the client's equity allocation should go into them. That's for each advisor to determine on their own. Personally, I am very overweighted in this space. It makes a lot more sense, I believe, to invest in the companies that are not just creating this technology, but more importantly, using it in their businesses. Uh, I'll give you one simple illustration of this, David, the most um, boring anti-tech product that is incredibly popular is pizza. You know, we've been making pizza the same way for a couple of hundred years. And yet Pizza Hut and Domino's both get more than half their sales via um, mobile ordering. So people are using technology to buy pizza. You can track your pizza online. You can see whether or not the delivery driver is en route to your house. You can use uh, Xbox to order a pizza while you're playing video games so you don't interrupt your games. Uh, One of them is hooked up with Ford where you can order the pizza in your car and it tracks you via GPS so that the pizza arrives at your house at the same time you do. This is how 
companies are using technology to improve their businesses, even when the business itself is low tech, they're using high tech to make their business grow. Yeah, that's amazing. I, 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 and I guess the benefit of approaching this in an ETF form is like just the diversification play, right? Because not all of these are going to play out uh, as the, I mean, they're, they're, you'd still can see that some of these are kind of risky bets uh, on a case by case basis. You're absolutely um, right. And that's why I'm a big fan of diversification and therefore of ETFs, because, you know, look at the uh, airline industry. We know that airlines are here to stay, but at one point, Eastern and Pan Am were the two biggest airlines. They're both gone. Uh, in 1910, there were 200 automobile manufacturers in the United States. Today, there's three. So you're right. We don't know who the winners will be. We, we can pick a sector much more easily than we can pick a specific winner. As Warren Buffett said, better to be approximately right than precisely wrong. Yeah. And so to approach it from those uh, kind of like buckets, those themes, uh, I, you've identified a few. Uh, I think, you know, we know robotics, AI. Any other kind of big themes moving forward that kind of excite you when you think about them? Uh, I'm a huge fan of blockchain and digital assets as well. Um, Big fan on cybersecurity, on e-sports and e-commerce generally, fintech broadly. um, Big fans of all of those. I'll ask you the the regular question I ask uh, people who bring up uh, blockchain. Is, Is it the cryptocurrency or the technology that you're excited about? It's both. Uh, It's very difficult to invest in blockchain technology because the companies are of two flavors. They're either a small, tiny startup that you'll never be able to invest in, or they are part of somebody like IBM. So even if you did buy IBM stock, the impact on its bottom line of its blockchain activities is de minimis. So it's hard to actually invest in blockchain for most people, most clients, whereas Bitcoin is readily available to anybody anywhere. Uh, and it's more actionable, um, more visible. Uh, I also believe that there's a huge um, story to be told with digital assets, not just with digital currencies, which Bitcoin is not, but also digital assets, which Bitcoin is. Uh, And a lot of advisors are not really well schooled on this. And that's why I've created, by the way, the RIA Digital Assets Council, RIADAC.com, RIADAC.com, which is the goal of teaching financial advisors about blockchain and digital assets. We have, in fact, a webinar in December on this subject uh, just to give advisors the education they need so that they can give the clients the advice that the advisor feels they ought to get Uh, because advisors don't know much about this space. And if you don't understand it, you're not able to help your client. Uh, It's like annuities. I don't care if you like annuities or not. You need to understand them so that you can counsel your client. And right now, typical client asks a typical advisor, should I buy Bitcoin? The advisor has no idea how to answer because they don't understand it. So we need to get advisors better educated so they can do a better job for their clients. Well, or more harshly, the answer is uh, to themselves, I don't understand it. So to the client, it's no, absolutely not. You shouldn't. You're right. And that's a disservice to you and the client. And if you'd be so dismissively offhanded about it, you're basically telling your client that you're not state of the art, you're not cutting edge, and they're going to turn to somebody else who does know what they're talking about. You'll lose the client over this. Elias, I turn back a little bit to the industry trends, if I could, that it brings up. Uh, you know, you talked about the 10-year time horizon or the, uh, the longer time horizon for uh, advisory firms and uh, what they need to be doing to position themselves for the future, children firing parents, uh, advisors. Uh, 
What about the advisory industry having trouble bringing in younger people to be advisors in the first place? Uh, we've been talking about it for a long time. It still seems like the needle doesn't really move that dramatically on the average age of the advisor. I think it has moved a little bit, actually, over the past couple of years. But it, uh, Yeah, it's a problem. Uh, and the reason is because of the lousy reputation that the advisory industry has. Uh, I remember my cousin's kid uh, a business major in college was so excited because she got an internship at one of the largest insurance companies in America. And we were having dinner and she was talking about how excited she was. And she said, and they're even going to get me licensed. And I said to her, do you realize that the reason they're going to license you as an intern is so that you can make cold calls looking for new business? And she denied it. After her internship, she said, I'm so fed up. That's exactly what they did. I've changed my major. I have no desire to go anywhere near the financial industry. Yeah. So that was her limited exposure. And it was a bad rap. This is not what kids today want to do. We, you know, most of us got into this business 20, 30, 40 years ago because it was a lucrative business. Today, most people get into this business because it's a way to improve the world. That's what they want to do. And they don't see Wall Street as acting that way. They see Wall Street as the enemy. We all love to hate banks and insurance companies and credit card companies and brokerage firms. And so young people are not naturally offered to come to this business because we're not making it palatable for them. And that's a big mistake for this industry. And it uh, explains a lot of the startups you see, uh, like Wealthfront and Betterment and Acorns and, and others, where they're speaking the language of youth. And the rest of the industry needs to recognize this, uh, because otherwise, you're right, David, they're not going to really be interested in joining a business that they think violates their own personal values. Yeah. And, and they don't see it... Uh... Uh, necessarily as the intellectually interesting uh, and free, intellectually free space that it is, right? Yeah, they think it's about money. And it's not about money. It's about people in their lives. This is the most impactful. The way I like to look at it, we're social workers for affluent people. <laughs> uh, I'm not suggesting the work we do is anywhere near as important as true social workers uh, or that we even have their true skill sets. But let's face it, we spend most of our time with most of our clients talking about stuff that has nothing to do with their investments. When we do a two-hour client review meeting, we spend about 10 minutes on the investments. The rest of it is all about the client's lives. What's going on in your life? What's worrying you? What's, what's a new development? Whose health has changed? Well, who's getting married or divorced? Is there a new baby on the scene? Has there been a death in the family? Somebody changing jobs? Someone falling ill? Somebody wanting to move? Someone winning an award? Someone going to jail? What's going on in the life of the family? It's all about the family and helping the family deal intergenerationally when you're dealing with a complicated family tree of multiple marriages, children from prior marriages, uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera, where you have one out of nine U.S. households have a special needs child in the family. When you have an incredible number of family members uh, of people in America incarcerated, others with significant drug or alcohol addictions, mental health problems, this has nothing to do about what happened in the Dow today? That's where we spend our time. That's where we demonstrate our value. And if we could express that to kids in high school and college, they would flock to our industry because it's so rewarding. Yeah, I agree. Let me ask you this, though, in terms of the, the trends in the industry. Is a smaller, like, you know, we see still a lot of these, you know, two or three, four advisor RIA shops. Uh, do they have the capacity to give clients that kind of attention? in the scale that they need to 
in order to survive as a business? No, I, I don't. I don't think yeah. so. Uh, I think we're seeing an evolutionary uh, iteration in our industry away from the small mom and pop shop, which I used to be, used to be Gene and me, my wife and I doing it as a mom and pop shop toward now major corporations with uh, thousands of employees, hundreds of billions of dollars in assets in our case uh, with 170 offices across the country with the depth of capabilities of a corporate level, massive amounts of funding through our PE partners, um, huge depth of talent in every array, not just in the corporate world, but also in the planning world where I can't ask every advisor to be an expert in every detail. So we have teams of lawyers, of insurance experts, uh, of every, uh, uh, of accounting experts, every segment you can anticipate so that our planners have access to these resources to make sure the client is getting the advice they need at the time they need it. Uh, and I don't see how a small independent shop with one or two planners and maybe a part-time assistant can pull that off. Uh, and I don't know how they're going to survive in the future. They've been able to get away with it in the past because there hasn't been much competition. Returns have been good. And it's easy for clients to be complacent and happy when the markets are doing well. But as the needs of our clients evolve and grow, and they become, become to get aware of the opportunities that are available elsewhere, they will demand more from their advisor. And if the advisor isn't able to provide it, then they will go elsewhere. And you couple that with the notion that advisors are now in their 60s for the most part. The advisor has to ask, do I really want to work that hard, reinvent my business, grow and develop my technological capabilities, the breadth of services? Uh, how do I do this? Advisors are discovering I, I'm better off joining a bigger firm that can help give me that underlying support because advisors are getting caught up in practice management activities. They're dealing with HR and IT and compliance and marketing. That's not why people become advisors. We became advisors because we love patients. We love clients. We love dealing with clients. We don't want to deal with that back office nonsense. You move your firm to a bigger organization. You offload your burden of all that stuff so you can do what you love doing, which is being an advisor. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, listen, last question. We're going to fly way back up to the 30,000 foot macro view. Uh, if you were advising the government right now about the policies they should take over the next year to deal with the virus, to deal with the economic stimulus if we need it, uh, maybe we don't need it. Maybe you think we don't need it. I don't know. Uh, what would you advise? What, what should be the government policies going forward into 2021? Congress has done a very, very consistent job. I've been on the air, my, my radio show for 35 years, and I started my broadcasting in Washington, D.C. So I know they're listening. And they have done a very consistent job over the past 35 years of completely ignoring everything I have said. Um, so they don't, nobody really cares what my views are about what they ought to do. I spend my time helping my clients digest, interpret, and implement strategies based on what Congress does do, because I don't have any influence on them. So I'll just respond effectively for my clients instead. It's healthier for us all. Okay, well, that's great. I Fair enough. Uh, Rick, this has been great. I appreciate it. We're, uh, uh, we're, we're a little over our due date, but uh, uh, thanks very much for talking to us. David, it's, uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much. I've been talking to Rick Edelman, the co-founder of Edelman Financial Engines. I'm David Armstrong, editor of WealthManagement.com. Thanks for listening. This content has been made for information and educational purposes only. The views and opinions represent the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of WealthManagement.com.